0: Today, I want to invite you to come on a journey with me into something beautiful, glorious, full of awe-inspiring wonder. The splendor of all splendor. God Himself, as He really is, revealed as the Trinity. God, the Holy Trinity. I want to talk about the Gospel of the Holy Trinity. You see, I love the Trinity. That's because I love God, and God is a trinity. And very few people have a firm grasp of the trinity. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet wrote in chapter 40, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Hear, hear is your God. That's what we're going to be about in our time together, talking about God as he really is. Very few have a firm grasp of the concept of the Trinity, and it's important, therefore, at the outset to determine what we as Christians mean by the term. The doctrine of the Trinity simply stated is this. There is one eternal being of God, and this one being of God is shared by three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is therefore one in essence and three in personality. Now, it's vital and very, very necessary to distinguish between two terms, being and person. It would be a total contradiction to say that there are three beings within one being, or three persons within one person. But there is no contradiction, because that's not what is being communicated at all. That's often what is understood, but it's not the biblical doctrine. Here's what we are saying as Christians. There is one eternal, infinite being of God, shared fully and completely by three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're talking about one what and three who's. That's a good way of trying to get some sort of semblance of understanding about it. It's hard to grasp the Trinity, but that's what the Bible reveals. One what and three who's. One God and three persons. All the major cults of today... Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower Organization, the Mormons or the Latter-day Saints, they contend that Christians have simply made up the concept of the Trinity. They say, well, the term's not even found in the Bible. Of course it's made up. Well, it's true that the actual term cannot be found in Scripture, the term Trinity. But I'd have to say, well, so what? Even the word Bible is not found in the Bible. You might find it on the front of the Bible. But the term Bible comes from the word biblos, meaning book. And therefore, uh, the word Bible means the book. The Bible is not just a book, but the book. It's the very Word of God himself. And it's the most important book anyone can ever read. That's why we call it the book, the Bible. It's the only one that is inspired by God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Or well, literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. Theognoustos is the Greek term found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is therefore uh, more than enough to equip us for all that we need in ministry. That's the context of those words. So it's on the basis of the God-breathed Scripture that Christians throughout the centuries have professed belief in the Holy Trinity, affirming the fact that our one God is eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal, co-existent, and co-eternal. There never was a time when the Father was not, or the Son was not, or the Holy Spirit was not. They are co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal. And that's because those concepts are found clearly in Scripture. Now, many avoid the subject of the Trinity. They might say, well, it's for seminary students only, those who have a, a desire to understand these things. Uh, it serves no practical use. I have to disagree with that. A thousand percent, if that's possible. Uh, God has revealed himself as the Trinity for our edification. And it's for all our edification. It's for all of our building up in the most holy faith. It is a mystery, to be sure. But it's not a contradiction. There's one what and three who's. And it's this God who is dealing with us as the sons of men. There is no other God but the God who is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In our offer of the gospel, when we take the gospel to the world and to people that we uh, share the good news of Jesus Christ with, oftentimes we offer salvation, but try not to let on the fact that God is a trinity. Well, this might be something people learn down the line, so to speak. I think that's a mistake, and it's certainly... Uh, not what the gospel writers wanted us to understand about God. In fact, when John, who writes his gospel, tells us why he writes the gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, I've written these things to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. Even there in the explanation as to why the gospel of John was written, John tells us, I want you to believe something specific about the Lord Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the long awaited anointed one. And he is the son of God. He wants us to understand the father son relationship. Of course, it's the Holy Spirit also who is God and That is made clear in certain passages in the Gospel of John, and John wants us to know about the Holy Spirit as well. But if you even start with the first verse of John's Gospel, it reveals a Trinitarian God, the Father and Son, in an eternal relationship. We know John chapter 1 and verse 1 so well, we could almost quote it in our sleep. In the beginning, NRK in Greek, as far back as you can go in time, God was already there. And who was with him? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there's a difference, a distinction, between the Word and God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. There's a distinction and the Word was God. How do we understand that? Only the Holy Trinity. And understanding the concept of Trinity can explain to us what is meant in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, as far back as you can go, the Word already was there with God. Pros-God. Literally, it means face-to-face with God. There was an eternal relationship of love between the Father and the Son. And this is the glorious message of our Bibles, that God is not some solitary person by himself for eternity, eventually, after an eternity, thinking, I'll make a creation in which I can show some loving thoughts and do some loving things. No, the Bible's revelation is that God was in a love relationship of immense proportions, infinite proportions. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were in a love relationship for eternity, and creation is the overflow, Uh, like a fountain erupting. Creation is the overflow of this love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, So that God says, let us, uh, Genesis 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image. It's the overflow. We see this so well in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, where he talks of this love relationship before the world began. In John chapter 17, we can go to that prayer that Jesus prayed. It's called his high priestly prayer, the night before his crucifixion. He's praying for the elect of God, those that the Father has given him. And he talks of them and prays for them. And in verse 23, says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you, talking to his Father, sent me. Again, a distinction between Father and Son. And love them even as you have loved me. That's an amazing revelation that we could take a lot of time to unpack. But let's go to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that's a phrase we find throughout the writings of this gospel, may be with me where I am. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, Now listen to this next phrase. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's the Son of God praying to his Father and talking of that love relationship between Father and Son before the foundation of the world. Every other God is solitary, but our God is triune in this love relationship. And that's why we can say he is love no other God can come up to this standard. This loving relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit was there from eternity, and it spilled over into time. And this God is the one we are to deal with. Many try to avoid it. I say, no, 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 this is the God of the Bible. This is the God we are to come into relationship with. In fact, Jesus' definition of eternal life is to know God. In that same chapter earlier, it says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Again, it, it just is an amazing statement here because no earthly prophet Who is a mere prophet could ask that he would be glorified. It would be totally out of line for Ezekiel to say, Glorify me. No, he would only be right in asking for God Himself to get glory. God alone shares His glory with Himself, He does not dispense it to others. Only He is to get glory. Soli Deo Gloria is the Latin phrase, to God alone be the glory, based on what Scripture teaches. My glory I will not give to another, the Bible says, speaking of God. And yet the Son prays that he would be glorified. Again, a declaration of his divinity. Verse 2, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, and to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Well, let's prick up our ears because he's going to now define what eternal life is. This is eternal life. This is John 17, verse 3. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Here is the Lord Jesus speaking as a man to his Father. And this would be the right way to speak of God as his Father. He is the only God. And yet he's already claimed to be praying for glory, to be his as the Son. But eternal life is knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Oh, this is eternal life, to know you and to know Jesus Christ. I'm just amazed by this God as he reveals himself. And we'll always have a shallow relationship, or worse, be prone to idolatry without knowing the tri-unity of God. Do you know it? Is it true in your experience that you've come to know this God? We're going to look at Scripture on this, and rightly so, because three things are very clearly taught in Scripture. Number one, there's only one God. We are monotheists. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. People say, well, you must believe in three if there are three divine persons. No, 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 no. One what? Three who's. One God and three persons share in that divinity. There's only one God. He is eternal, immutable. That means unchanging and incapable of change. And one of the places we get this from is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Now this verse in the Old Testament to the Jews is what John chapter 3 verse 16 is for the rest of uh, the world the Christians who have New Testament the most famous verse I think in the entire Bible is John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son there again is evidence of the Trinity that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not, will not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. Now, from ancient times, the people of Israel were taught to recite the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. The word Shema in Hebrew means to hear. And it comes from the first words of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Shema, Yisrael, Yahweh, Elohim. Yahweh Echad, hear, O Israel, Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's our starting point. In fact, Jesus quotes the Shema in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. You can go check that out. But Jesus, as a Jew, was not uh, diminishing the Old Testament revelation. He is the revelation of God, and everything he is going to bring to us is more clarity built on the foundation of the Old Testament. And so in quoting the Shema, he was not denying the Trinity, but it is the basis of the Trinity to say there is only one God. Absolutely. And this one God is eternally existent in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The father has delighted in his son for eternity and eternally this is who he is. God is love and you and I can't know him without becoming like him. And that's the message of 1 John 4, 7 and 8. The one who says he loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He's not been rubbing around or getting around the true God because to get around him, you'll be manifesting love because God is love. Now, the wrong place to start in giving illustrations of the Trinity is to give illustrations of the Trinity. (laughs) Do you know what I mean by that? Many times uh, in a classroom or with children, teachers like to give illustrations, and they do this oftentimes with the Trinity. But it's, It's never in our Bible that we find an illustration of the Trinity because God is unlike anything in creation. You ever heard of this? God, the Trinity, is like three states of H2O. There's the liquid, the water, there's the steam that rises, and there's ice. Okay, well, it's a little strange. Maybe you've heard this one. He's like an egg. There's three parts to an egg. There's the shell, there's the white, and there's the yolk. Okay, well, that doesn't fill me with awe to say God is like an egg. Well, how about this? He's like a three-leafed clover. You ever seen one of these? Perhaps in the British Isles or or Ireland especially, you might find these three-leafed clovers dotted around the countryside. It's uh, one plant, if you like, and yet there's three bits to it. Well, again, that doesn't fill me with awe to speak of a one-plant, three-bit thing out there. It's its all a bit bizarre. The, the closest thing that's helpful in terms of an illustration is something by uh, J.I. Packer. He said, uh, I, I don't like il- illustrations and uh, all of them kind of uh, have you end up in heresy if you believe them or take them too far. And uh, he said that's, that is the case. That's why the Bible doesn't give illustrations of the Trinity. But he says one that may be helpful is that of a three-person team, perhaps a hockey team or a soccer or football team, whereby there's one team all going for a particular mission to win a game. And there are three persons on the team, the goalkeeper, a defender, And someone on offense, an attacker, and they each have different roles on the one team, three persons, one team. And that's probably more helpful in the other illustrations, but no illustration is really going to do justice to the Trinity. I think the best illustration is found in our Bibles, when in the water, in Matthew uh, chapter 3, we have the Son of God as he is baptized, the baptism of Jesus Where the Son is in the water, the Father speaks from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we are told that the Holy Spirit uh, fell on him or descended upon him in terms of like a dove. Didn't say he was a dove, but like a dove, the Holy Spirit descended on him. Three persons are at work, uh, three persons are active, and yet we have the one God as Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 presents God in the Word of God. So God is love, God is three persons, and God is one. There is only one God. We find this throughout our Bibles. There is only one God. Isaiah chapter 43, we have this revelation from God about himself. Again, it's a confirmation of Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. In Isaiah, as I turn to it, in chapter 43 and verse 10, God says this, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I am. Even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It goes on. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. That's what we're saying. He's immutable. As God, he does not change. He is eternal. There is one God. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, a New Testament verse that says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, a sarcasm is literally dripping from the quill of James as he says, You believe that there's a God. You believe in one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. They know that there's one God. So that's a fact of Scripture. There's one God. Secondly, There are three eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these persons are never identified with one another. Now grasp this, that is, they are carefully differentiated as distinct persons. The Father is not the Son, nor the Son, the Holy Spirit, and nor is the Holy Spirit the Father. There is a heresy out there, it's very popular actually, called modalism. M O D A L I S M. Run for your life when you hear it. And this has the idea, this is the idea, that God has modes of existence. And it's really the concept of God being a bit like an actor on a stage. And sometimes, as you might have seen in a play, an actor having two or three roles. He, in one scene, is a gardener. In another scene, he's a politician. And therefore, he has changed clothes between uh, scenes and he's moved from his gardening gear into a a suit and a tie, looking like a politician. And then in another scene, he's something else. Let's say he is uh, a janitor. All right. Well, the problem comes when the three persons have to act in one scene, (laughs) But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not one person acting in three different ways. Often on a statement of faith, a modalist church will talk like they believe in the Trinity, but they don't. They don't in any way at all. And they speak of modes of being. They say, we believe in... One God who manifests himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Notice what they don't say. They will not say the word persons. They believe in modes of being, which is why they are called modalists. It's an ancient heresy, nothing to do with the Christian God at all. The Christian God is one God in three divine persons. Look for the word persons in any statement of faith. So important we grasp that. So, as is a Trinitarian faith, there's this ever-flowing fountain of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God is love because he is a Trinity. He has had this love relationship for all eternity, and, as I say, illustrated in the baptism of Jesus, the son's in the water, the Father declares his love from heaven, and the Holy Spirit rests on the sun. All other gods, with a small g, there are no other gods, but made-up gods are needy. They require our service and worship because they need it. Because all other gods are solitary. They're lonely for eternity. He needs us in some sense. And that's why he's so demanding. But the triune God does not need us. Now, hear what I'm saying by that. He's not lonely and therefore created because there was something lacking in God. No, God does not need anything. He had this vibrant, full relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, for eternity, and they were infinitely satisfied in the infinity of the Trinity, and that's why heaven will be heaven for us, because If the Father can be satisfied in the Son, and the Son can be satisfied in the Father for eternity, there is more than enough satisfaction for us finite creatures in heaven being with God for eternity. We are not going to get bored in any sense of that word when we are with God, able to enjoy Him forever. There's an eternal sea of unfolding revelation of beauty and grandeur and satisfaction. The Bible says in his presence there's fullness of joy. At his right hand there's pleasures forevermore. We have a perfectly satisfied God who has life in himself, who gives us life and then eternal life in the overflow of this love relationship. The consequences of not getting this is to have God merely as a lawmaker, a judge, a policeman. We'll come back to that. But we've established so far that there's one God who's eternal and immutable, and there are three eternal persons who are differentiated from each other. We've seen this already in John chapter 17. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus in John's Gospel said, I will send another Helper, He, the Spirit of Truth. He will come. He will lead and guide you. He'll be like me in one sense. He is another of the same kind, but He's another. He's a person. He's not a force, and we're going to see that. The third concept we need to grasp is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each identified as being fully divine. Full deity. That is, the Bible teaches the deity of the Father, the deity of Christ the Son, and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, or Source of Everlasting Life. And so it goes on. We know those words very well. Often they appear on Christmas cards, but do we grasp it? Uh, Unto us a child is born. That speaks of the humanity of Christ. But the Son, the Son of God, was never born because the Son, as the Son of God, never had a beginning. The Son was given. The Son was given the child was born. You see the consistency throughout the whole Bible on this. That's why John three sixteen says, the father so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. It's the giving of the son that results in a gospel that we can proclaim, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah was brought to absolute ruin on a moral level when he realized his great sin in the light of God's supreme majesty and holiness. It says in verse 1 of Isaiah 6, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now we're reading through this quickly, but grasp the magnitude of this. These are angels made for the very presence of God. Just as birds are made to fly and fish are made to swim in the sea, these were angels made for the very presence of God. And yet, with the six wings, two of those wings were used to cover the face. Grasp that. That shows us the amazing magnitude of the holiness of God. In fact, that's what we now read in verse 3. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. L-O-R-D is in capitals in the Bible I'm using, signifying this is the Hebrew term Yahweh being used. Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This glorious revelation was given to Isaiah and he was undone. As he says, woe is me, he pronounced a curse on himself. Woe is an old English word that means I'm cursed. Woe is me for I'm undone. And then we hear the intervention of God or read of it in Isaiah 6. Now, what's supremely interesting to us is that in John's gospel, in uh, John chapter 12, the gospel writer tells of this experience of Isaiah in seeing God upon the throne and seeing the glory of God and speaks of this incident in remarkable terms. In verse 41, jumping into the passage for the sake of time, but... I'm sure not taking it out of its setting. It says, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now that's stunning. Because the only time Isaiah saw the glory of God was this incident in Isaiah chapter 6, which clearly is an unveiling of the Lord Yahweh on the throne. And John, the gospel writer, says it was this Jesus in really a pre-incarnate state that Isaiah saw. He saw his, that's the Lord Jesus Christ's, glory. Jesus didn't start existing when he was born physically. He always was with the Father. And he has manifested himself throughout the Old Testament as the manifestation of, of God, the, the one who is seen. The Father is unseen, but the Son reveals him. John chapter 1, verse 18 spells this out. No one has seen God at any time, speaking of the Father. But the only God who's in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has exegeted Him. He has revealed Him. And that's what He's done in time, in being born into this world. And it is also the fact that many in the Old Testament did see God. Not the Father, but they did see the Son. I believe it is the Lord God, who we now know of as Jesus, that Adam and Eve saw in the garden. The Lord God walked with them in the cool of the day. Who was that? Well, John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen God. Well, they saw God. Well, it's talking about the distinction between the Father and the Son. No one has seen the Father, but they have seen the Son. And that's the one who walked with them. And all through the Old Testament, we have glimpses of this it's a bit like a a, a dimmer switch whereby you turn the light on in a room but with a dimmer switch you can start with very little light and then turn the dial a little bit or the, the dimmer switch a little bit and it gets brighter and then turn it fully and you get the full brightness that's what we have in our bibles a full unveiling of who god is especially where the lights come fully on when we encounter the Lord Jesus. He reveals the Father in stunning, spectacular ways and displays the Father. He's able to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm like him. He's like me. What I'm doing, I'm doing because I'm seeing the Father doing it. I'm saying things because I'm hearing the Father saying it. So, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw Yahweh In John's gospel, the gospel writer says he saw Christ in a pre-incarnate state. He saw his glory. In Psalm 102, we have the psalmist making declarations about God. Psalm 102, in fact, let's go back to verse 25. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure, and all of them will wear out like a garment Like clothing, you'll change them, and they will be changed. But you, speaking of God, are the same, and your years will not come to an end. The children of your servants will continue. And so it goes on. When we come to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, this passage is referred to as speaking of Christ. When we see this, we see the full deity of Christ in view. I know we can go to many different verses in our New Testament that spells out the divinity of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1 is just one of many in John's gospel. John chapter 5, Jesus himself said that men are to honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He says, I am working and my Father is working. Again, a great claim to deity, which if you check John's gospel, the crowd understood he was making a direct claim to divinity by doing what he was doing and saying, My father's working and I'm at work too. Uh, After the resurrection, Thomas fell down before him in John chapter 20 and said, My Lord and my God, verse 28. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, he calls himself the great I am and says, Before Abraham was, I am. Clear, clear reference to deity. All the way through the epistles, we see the exact same thing emerge. Here in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. We could back up and look at verse 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Firstborn is a title. uh, Not speaking of the Son being born in that sense of uh, physicality. But it's a title of firstborn, which means he gets all of the rights of sonship. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Worship of anything less than God is forbidden. Ezekiel would never be uh, worshipped. Jeremiah never worshipped. But all of the angels of God, it says, Let all of them, not some, let all the angels of God worship him. Talking of Christ. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, God says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And again, speaking of the sun, hear this. There's no doubt who is in view here, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Hebrew writer tells us that the passage we just read in Psalm 102 was a reference to the Lord Jesus and you, the Son, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. Colossians makes it clear. Uh, Colossians 2 verse 9, in Christ dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. That's a tremendous scripture. Uh, He's the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one God, and Jesus is also called God throughout the Bible. He is worshipped, and only God is to be worshipped. Philippians 2 speaks of though he was existing in the very form of God, he did not regard that equality, something to be grasped at, held on to at all costs, but made himself of no reputation. It speaks of the humility of this one who descended from heaven and became a man and descended even to the lowest point of being a slave of the Father, even to go to death on the cross And therefore, God has highly exalted him. Uh, This one, uh, in addition to his deity, added humanity. The Word became flesh, as John chapter 1, verse 14 states. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit, because we're making this declaration that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are identified as full deity in the cults. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses uh, speak of the Holy Spirit as a force and not a person. Well, who exactly is the Holy Spirit? Is he an impersonal force? Well, others put him as a dove, like a dove-like creature. He's fragile, super sensitive. Really? The Bible speaks of him in very different terms and ascribes to him attributes that only could be true of God. He's called God. Acts chapter 5 is a very easy reference to look at because Ananias and Sapphira, it says, lie to the Holy Spirit, verse 3. And in the next couple of verses, Peter makes it clear that in lying to the Holy Spirit, they have not lied to men but to God. So the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. That's a word that means all, omni meaning all and present obviously means present. He's present in all places. He's everywhere present. The Holy Spirit is everywhere at all times. Hear this from Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. The Holy Spirit is omnipotent. Omnipotent is the way we say it. Omni, all-potent power. He's all-powerful. Hear this in Luke chapter 1 concerning the announcement of the birth of Christ. In verse 34, Mary said to the angel, "'How can this be, since I am a virgin?' The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He's omnipotent. Power of the Most High is the power of the Holy Spirit. He's omniscient. Omni, all. Uh, the word uh, speaks of knowledge. And so the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He has all knowledge. Hear this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God knows no one, or no one knows, except the Spirit of God. God the Holy Spirit. He is the one who knows the thoughts of God. That's omniscience. He's eternal. Hebrews 9 verse 14. See, the Holy Spirit has no beginning, no end. In verse 14 of Hebrews 9, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Did you hear it? The eternal Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit who is holy. He's holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, pure, perfect, sacred, set apart. Let's look at those simple words, the Holy Spirit. The word the speaks of a definite article denoting the uniqueness of the Spirit. While there are many different spirits out in the world, there's only one Holy Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. The word holy depicts his utter purity and sacredness. And the word spirit speaks of immateriality rather than physical or material substance. Now, hear this. The Bible ascribes him all the characteristics of personality. He is a he, not an it. Jesus in John's Gospel referred to him as he when he the Spirit of Truth comes. When He, the Comforter, comes. When He comes. You see, as a person, He has a will. No force has a will. But the person of the Holy Spirit does. Hear this. 1 Corinthians twelve eleven. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. The Bible says He has a mind. First Corinthians two ten and 11. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Hear this in Romans eight twenty six. In the same way, the Spirit, capital S, talking of the Holy Spirit, also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself, Again, not itself. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit has a mind. The Holy Spirit speaks. I know with electricity we can make certain objects speak but electricity doesn't have a will, isn't able by itself to form words, but the Holy Spirit speaks. Hear this, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, now hear this, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now we don't know in what way the Holy Spirit spoke. Most people, most scholars would believe that this was uh, the Holy Spirit working through prophecy. But notice what scripture says, the Holy Spirit said, men spoke, But it was the Holy Spirit speaking through them. The Holy Spirit said. That's what the scripture says. He has emotions. You see, a force cannot be grieved. Electricity can't be grieved. Gravity can't be grieved. But a force is not what the Holy Spirit is. He's a person and he can be grieved. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. The command to not grieve the Holy Spirit speaks of the fact that it's possible to grieve him. So don't do it, unlike a mere force. You see, the Holy Spirit can be lied to. You don't lie to a force. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter said, to Ananias. And you've not lied to men, but to God. He can be grieved, as we've said. He can be quenched. 1st Thessalonians 5:19 Do not quench the spirit. The Holy Spirit can be resisted Acts chapter 7 verse 51. We will always resist the Holy Spirit unless God gives us a new heart. And so it was very very clear the hearers in uh, Stephen's sermon were resisting the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 7 verse 51 You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears he are uh, always resisting the Holy Spirit you're doing just as your fathers did The Holy Spirit can be blasphemed that's to speak against Therefore in Matthew 12:31 I say to you Jesus speaking any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people but blasphemy against the spirit shall not be forgiven Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in in this age or in the age to come. Now the Bible uses names, titles, and symbols to describe the work of the Spirit. He's referred to as fire, wind, water, wine. He's referred to even as being dove-like. Yet the Holy Spirit is actually none of these things. These are merely symbols used to illustrate something about the Spirit, to communicate something about the nature and work of the Holy Spirit. Yet neither of these terms individually, nor all of them collectively, fully characterize the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He's called the Spirit of Christ, 1 Peter 1.11. The Spirit of God, Genesis 1.2, Job 33.4, Romans 8.11. The Spirit of glory, 1st peter 4:14 4, the spirit of the lord isaiah 61:1 the spirit of the father matthew 10:20 the spirit of the son galatians 4:6 the power of the highest luke 1:35 he's also the spirit of holiness romans 1:4 the spirit of knowledge isaiah 11:2 the spirit of life romans 8:2 the spirit of might Isaiah eleven two, the eternal Spirit Hebrews nine fourteen, the Spirit of Truth John fourteen seventeen and chapter fifteen twenty six, the Spirit of Grace Zechariah twelve ten, the Spirit of Judgment Isaiah four four, the Spirit of Adoption Romans eight fifteen, the Spirit of Counsel Isaiah eleven two, John fourteen fifteen through eighteen, the Spirit of Revelation Ephesians one. 17 now much more could be said and should be said about this divine person called the holy spirit yet even with these few thoughts they're enough to cause us to marvel at such a wonderful person who's been sent to help us as the children of god to lead us and guide us into the truth of the word of god he is the paraclete the one called alongside us to help and the christian life is impossible without the holy spirit and his involvement The Trinity works in salvation, in terms of unity. The Father chooses a people. The Son dies for those people, makes atonement for them. And then the Holy Spirit applies redemption to this exact same group. There's a unity of purpose in the Trinity. And the gospel is Trinitarian. We're kind of out of time right now, and we want to talk about so much more But this will get us started to understand who our God is. God is one. There is one God and three divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Breaking forth in joy and love, this God made everything. All creation, including man. But this man, Adam, grieved God, sinned against God. And all the fallen human race sinned in Adam And yet it was the will of the Holy Trinity for the Father to send the Son into the world and he would come and live a sinless life and die an atoning death. And then after three days, rise again from the dead. And all who put their trust in him, who repent of sin and believe in this one Lord Jesus Christ, this sinless one who died and rose again, who is Lord of all, all those who believe in Him will not perish under the wrath of God, the wrath that they deserve, but will understand that this Lord Jesus Christ has made atonement for all who will trust in Him. So, come to this, to this God. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe in Him. Trust only in Him. Forsake all other gods and all other so-called gods and so-called gospels. And come to the Son. He who has the Son has life. and The Bible tells us of this Lord Jesus who's come into the world for a specific purpose, to save a people for himself. And justification is the fact that God declares us right in his sight because of Christ. Our sins were transferred to Christ on the cross. Our sins were laid on him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So believe in him because transferred to all those who believe is the righteousness of Christ which allows us to stand in the presence of the Father clean because of Christ. He was our substitute who stood in our place and hung there in our place on the cross 1st Peter 2:24 He bore our sins in his body on the tree. And 1st Peter chapter 3 verse 18 describes why Christ came. It says, "For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God." That's the whole point of the gospel, to bring us to God. And the revelation of the Bible is that this God is the Holy Trinity. Before I close, let me recommend a few resources whereby you can take this a lot further. Uh, Nathan Buzanitz, if you look up uh, his name online, Google it and look up this question, Did Constantine invent the Trinity? You'll see some resources from a Shepherd's Conference message. There's a PDF and PowerPoint slides going into much depth, answering the accusation of the cults that the Christian church in the 4th century made up the concept of the Trinity. It was unknown before then. That's absolute hogwash. I'm not actually sure what hogwash is, um, but it's not good, whatever it is. It's not true. And demonstrably false accusation. Trinity, the deity of Christ, always known by the church. And we have uh, much evidence of that. Look that up online. Enjoy that message. You'll find online if you'll do a Google search. Nathan Buzanitz Did Constantine Invent the Trinity? Also some uh, DVDs or a DVD series or CD series from Ligonier Ministries or something you can watch online at the Ligonier.org website. A series called The Mystery of the Trinity by R.C. Sproul. There he explains the difference between contradiction and mystery the trinity is mysterious but there's no contradiction involved a couple of books as i close the forgotten trinity by james white it's a tremendous defense of the trinity from scripture and that will make you uh, believe or help you believe in the trinity and uh, make you able uh, to defend it But there's one book that I I love above all of them on the Trinity, and it's called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. The James White book will help you defend the Trinity and believe it, but I believe Michael Reeves' book will help you love the Trinity. And uh, that's my prayer for us, that we would love God as he really is and enjoy him forever. Those that do will be the Christians who love God and are called out of darkness to proclaim the glory of the Holy Trinity. That's who our God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My prayer for us is that the grace of God would enable us to see Christ as He really is, and the Holy Spirit as He really is, and the Father as He really is. In 2 Corinthians 13, Verse 14, we have the great Trinitarian benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's my prayer for you in Jesus' name. Amen.